When the moon hits your eye Like a big pizza pie That's amore When the world seems to shine Like you've had too much wine That's amore for the judges and this multi-millionaire mogul now has the best kind of goal. The Thunderbird 144-8 for John Montgomery. It is Thunderbird with the Canada. Montgomery takes gold and it's good. The Caps have a 20. Oh, Bright has gone smack. Tora Bright is an Olympic gold medalist. Chuck scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Nadezhka touch for the line. 121-12. What another recovery from the youngster. Oh! She's taken gold! She's taken gold! The world champion in parallel giant slalom snowboarding is in gold medal position here. Can you believe it? It is off the podium an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a very, very exciting interview. We've been on a bit of a run of late with some Olympic gold medalists and we're back for another Olympic gold medalist, a Canadian Olympic gold medalist in the sport of bobsled and also an Olympic bronze medalist, the legendary Justin Cripps, four-time Olympic bobsledder, competed in Vancouver, Sochi, Pyeongchang and Beijing and at the time of recording this, as you'll hear me say immediately in the introduction, Justin had just announced his retirement, literally days before we did this interview a couple of months ago and it was very fresh on the mind and uh, obviously a lot to talk about in his amazing career and this is just a great chat learning about that career from his unique path into the sport, the unique place he was actually born and how he really kind of is the epitome of the Cool Runnings life as you'll learn in this interview and what it's like switching from a brakeman to a pilot, the actual use of the two men in a four-man bobsled that aren't either the pilot or the brakeman, something that we've been able to clarify after previously asking that question to some past bobsled athletes on this show. And Justin goes into extensive detail about his unique mindfulness techniques that really did help him through his journey, particularly when it came to winning gold in 2018 in the two-man bobsled, a famous race, of course. If people remember that two-man bobsled in Pyeongchang, Canada and Germany tied for that gold medal and the second time that it ever happened in Olympic history. It was an amazing race that uh, I remember watching vividly. So lots to hear from Justin here. And of course, as always, you know we're going to ask what he does with his Olympic medals. And more importantly, given that he did win an Olympic medal in Beijing, what has he done with Bing Dwen Dwen, the special Bing Dwen Dwen that we know they receive during the Beijing Olympics. A great chat here you're going to listen to with the legendary, the iconic, four-time Canadian Olympic bobsledder and two-time Olympic medalist, Justin Cripps. So very excited to welcome our next guest here to Off the Podium. We always get excited to talk about bobsleigh and the athletes that compete in it. We have a four-time Olympian on the show today, an Olympic gold medalist, an Olympic bronze medalist, and at least at the time of hitting the record button on this interview today, the freshly retired 
four-time Olympian, Olympic gold medalist, and Olympic bronze medalist. It's a massive pleasure to welcome off the podium, Justin Cripps. Justin, welcome to the show today, and happy retirement. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, it's uh, feeling pretty fresh being retired, but yeah, feeling good about it. Do you, do you ever think that when you're younger that you're going to be retired at the age of 35? I mean, it's a nice age. I'm 35, and I'm not quite yet retired, so I'm kind of jealous. Uh, this sounds like a nice life from now on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's always funny like that we call it retirement. You know, it's uh, I probably won't be moving down to Palm Springs quite yet, and uh, and just you know, being out on the golf course and hitting the happy hours and going to sleep at 6 p.m. Um, there's probably some uh, some more work in my future and, and other projects I'll be doing. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it feels it feels cool to um, feel really good about, you know, a chapter of your life and and close the door on it and, you know, still be like you say, only 35 and have lots of time to do other things. I, it's interesting you mentioned sort of like, you know, the the usual way of retiring there, Palm Springs, all those fun places. I, I, I believe you were born in Hawaii, so you kind of started life uh, in, a, in a location like that. So how does somebody born in Hawaii end up in BC and then end up uh, going to the Olympics uh, for, for Canada and bobsled? I mean, I, I don't know how many uh, bobsledders have been born in Hawaii. Yeah, there's probably not too many of us. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of did it in reverse, you know, I, I started in the the warm retirement places and then slowly moved to colder and colder places. Um, I actually have an Australian connection too. my mom's Australian and, and we spent wow. quite a lot of time in, in Sydney growing up as well. So, uh, and in the winters, so well, Canadian winters, Australian summers. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just, it's one of those things that, that happened and opportunities came along and I took them and that's just sort of the way it, it, it panned out. You know, we, um, we basically stayed in, in Canada for high school because the high school that we would have gone to in Hawaii, um, you know, we're not, we're not in a big city out there. We're not by the resorts. We're kind of uh, in the middle of nowhere and it's just didn't have the best school. And so we thought it would make more sense to, to do it in Canada. And we'd already kind of been following the Canadian curriculum and we'd take it with us when we went over to, to Hawaii for the winters. So it just made sense. Um, and then because of that, I ended up going to university in Canada, in Vancouver. And that's how I, I ended up even kind of finding out that bobsleigh was a, a thing you could do. You know, I'd seen cool runnings, but to me, it was, it was just movies, you know, it was, uh, I didn't know anything about it, but yeah, I got recruited out of university and then went to a really cold place, Calgary, Alberta, and then got to see what actual cold weather is like and, and lived the bobsleigh life for a bit. And, you know, it was a change. It was a big adjustment for me. Um, but I just, I had so much fun with it. I, I loved it. So I just kept going, you know. Because I believe it was a bit of a dare, wasn't it, to uh, end up trying out for, for bobsleigh. This wasn't something that uh, you kind of just, uh, I guess, grew up wanting to do, sort of as you alluded to there. So, I mean, how, how do you get a dare to go try out for bobsleigh? Well, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that like just comes around and, and you kind of, it's for me anyway, it was so, uh, so foreign of a thing. Like not only was it a winter sport, but, um, one that I had, you know, absolutely zero idea about, which I think is the case for, for quite a lot of people, especially people in Hawaii, um, and likely Australia too. Um, and so it's one of those things where you're almost like, how can I not go try this? You know, it's just so unique and so different. Um, 
that you almost have to do it. And that's what I did. <laughs> that simple. Which Were you sort of growing up athletic? Were you sort of typical child trying your hand at, at many different sports? And was the Olympics something too that kind of with the sports that you would maybe trying out was a, was a dream that you were trying to push towards? Yeah, it was. I was, you know, a very active kid, you know, being in Hawaii, we did some surfing and, you know, skimboarding and stuff like that. Lots of running around on the beach. And my brother would chase me around too, you know, he was older than me. So, um, you know, he'd want to, you know, steal my cookies and stuff like that. So I'd have to run away. Um, and then, you know, I kind of got into track and field in, in Canada in, in 96, um, watched Donovan Bailey win the hundred meters in Atlanta. And I just thought it was, it was so cool. It was just, you know, the most amazing thing. And I kind of decided I wanted to, to run after that. And, you know, as a little kid does, you don't really think about it too much more than that. You just, I went outside and started running, you know, like that was, I just ran as fast as I could down the, we kind of live in an orchard. So I'd run down the, the lanes of the trees and, you know, my dad started racing me and stuff like that. And I ended up sort of, also, I didn't really know about track teams. You know, I was just a little kid and I ended up getting into an actual track and field team at my elementary school, also in a random sort of happenstance way, because I was skateboarding at the bus stop at school, which is not allowed. You're not allowed to, you know, <laughs> skateboard at the bus stop. It was very much <laughs> against the rules. And I got in trouble. And uh, the, the teacher that was on duty there, Mr. Jones, he was going to take my skateboard away. And, you know, I was kind of like, Oh no, Mr. Jones, like don't take my skateboard. Like it's like my favorite thing. And he said, okay, well, you know what, if I won't take your skateboard, if you drop and give me 50 pushups, I was like, okay. So I dropped, gave him 50 pushups and I was a little bit of a, a cocky kind of kid. So I, at the time, and so I, I stood up and said, do you want 50 more? And he goes, <laughs> no, I don't want 50 more but I'd like you to come out for the, for the track team. And I was like, oh, okay. So I did that. And it turned out I was, you know, pretty quick compared to the other kids, which didn't mean a heck of a lot in Summerland because it's a very small town. Um, but that sort of progressed and I became really into track and field and, and combining that with the, the Donovan Bailey kind of inspiration moment, I, I wanted to go to the Olympics and that was sort of, that that dream that was the the beginning of the of the whole thing it really does the more you sell this sound like cool runnings you're born on a small tropical island you're into athletics you want to go to the olympics and you end up in bobsleigh so i mean seriously justin you really you, you, i think you like cool runnings a little bit more than you're leading on there it's just you're living the life of cool runnings <laughs> yeah maybe it made such an impact on me i unknowingly modeled my life after it yeah, it just kind of happens that way. Which with athletics, did you sort of you know progress through track and field? You know, really pursue actively sort of that Olympic dream of going to the Olympics in track and field? Yeah, I did. I was really serious about it. Um, I started you know training what I considered to be training hard when I was probably twelve or thirteen. There was a local track club in uh, Penticton, which is the the town down the road, but bigger town. Um, and yeah, I was I was serious about it. I started, you know, lifting weights and with the help of my parents trying to like find out how you train for track and field. And I went to bigger meets down on the coast in Vancouver and I was doing pretty well. Like I was naturally, um, you know, kind of fast so that 
that helped with the confidence and the motivation. And I ended up getting a, a scholarship to university, um, Simon Fraser University to run track. And I did that for a few years and I was, I was serious about it and I was, you know, okay. Um, but it, at that point we started racing down in the States quite a lot. We were in the NAIA, which is like a, just one of the collegiate leagues, um, that includes some Canadian schools. And there was a lot of guys that were really, really fast down there. And so it was, it was sort of this moment where I was like, I might not actually be able to be the best in the world at this. Like that might not be a realistic goal or, or even make the Olympics. It was, um, you know, kind of a, a moment where I was like, ah, man, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not as fast as I thought I was, you know. Which I can imagine when you're at that age and you've got all these dreams ahead of you and this is something that you've got to focus on. It's a, a pretty kind of real look at yourself to kind of to switch and see kind of what you want to do. So was that sort of around that period of time where bobsled sort of entered the frame? I mean, were there other options for other sports that maybe you were thinking of, well, if maybe I can't do track and field, but maybe I could switch these skills to something else. Yeah, it was quite um, fortunate timing. Really. Um, I had, there was some interest on the football team at the school as well. They were kind of asking me to come and, um, and try football and, you know, this is all like I'm 18 or maybe 19 at this point. Um, and yeah, you know, for track, I was thinking realistically, if, is this something that I'll be able to do after university? You know, it wasn't necessarily looking so good. Um, football, I was interested in trying it, but at the time <laughs> I'd been to a couple football games where my homeschool SFU was playing. And at the time, unfortunately, they were 0 and 16 over the last two seasons. Wow. And I watched a couple of my friends on the football team just get their heads absolutely taken off while they were playing, like just tackled so hard, ear hold. I was kind of like, I don't know, you know, it's maybe, but. And right around that time, um, I was approached by a, a recruiter from the bobsleigh team just at a, a track meet I was running at. And he was literally just kind of at the finish line. And it was, you know, I, he, he told me about it and I kind of told my friends and, you know, it was kind of like a, a random dare to go do it or, you know, they encouraged me to do it. Why not? Um, and so it was just kind of at this perfect time where I went out and I really, I met all of these awesome people. Uh, it's it, like bobsleigh is a, you know, relatively small sport. So when I went to this camp, um, I was in the like development section, but you got to meet all of the, world cup team and it was in 2006 so it was just after an olympics um this was like the summer of 2006 and the olympics would have been in february or march or whatever and so you're kind of meeting all these olympians and like i'd never really met an olympian before not a current one anyway and just a great group of guys and it seemed like such a cool sport and after that camp um they were like well, you know, you, you have a lot of potential to be good at this. We would like to send you to Europe for the winter and you can learn the sport, kind of do the development circuit. And I was like, you know, it just seemed like such an adventure and such a cool opportunity that I just, I decided to do it. Insane how that can all sort of play out. And I guess, I mean, a slight little 
bonus, I'm sure it entered your mind knowing that the next Olympics were literally in your own backyard as well. So a slight benefit there if you think, well, okay, if I'm kind of good at this, I could be going to my first Olympics uh, in my hometown essentially. Yeah, it was actually super funny because I I went to the, I was invited to the the bid announcement or the, I don't know what you call it, but it was a, it was a big gathering at BC place in Vancouver, which is a huge stadium. It's like 60,000 mm -hmm. people. And it was live streamed in the IOC announcing who um, was going to get awarded the 2010 Olympics. And for me at the time, I think it, like it was probably 2003 or two or something like that. Yeah. 2003. Yep. Yeah. So I was at the time I had never even considered being in the winter Olympics in, in any capacity. And the only reason I was invited was because I was just sort of part of the sports scene as like a sort of national level track athlete, like junior track athlete. Um, and so I remember, you know, this announcement, like everybody was celebrating and I was like, wow, that's going to be so cool having the Olympics in Vancouver, which is where I was living. Uh, not even remotely thinking that I could compete in them. Mm. And then fast forward to, I think it was, it was either that first year, 2006, that I started bobsleigh. I think it was that first year I was sitting in a car with the, the, my pilot at the time, Lyndon Rush, who I'd been kind of paired up with and the two other guys. And he said, you know, this team is, is pretty good. Like this is the first kind of fast pushing team I've had. Like if we work really hard, we could make the Olympics in 2010. And I was kind of like, what? Like in, you know, four years we could make the Olympics. And he was like, yeah, like we could. And I was like, that was kind of this moment where I was like, wow. I mean, you know, what a, what a goal to work towards being able to, in a, a short amount of time, go to a hometown Olympics, like just amazing. And I, I mean, that was all the motivation I needed. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that turnaround. I mean, I, I remember I was six when Sydney got the Olympics and just the the way that takes over a country and the excitement that you've got in a seven-year period and then obviously the Olympics coming on. But as you're saying there, being involved in that excitement, being in a completely different uh, sport that wouldn't see you in those Olympics and then kind of having that journey, it's, it's insane. I, I always love finding out from uh, people in bobsled, your first time in the sled, particularly, you know, uh, having not really having that winter background. I mean, do you, do you remember that first experience, Justin, getting in that sled and what it was like? Yeah, I do. It was like, it's so hard to describe. It's so much crazier than it looks on TV. Like it looks kind of crazy on TV, but being in the sled, especially in the back of the sled where you, you can't see what's going on and you don't have any control over what's happening. It's absolutely insane. I remember going down and just before I went down, some of the, you know, national team guys that I started to befriend, um, were telling me about the track and like what I was going to feel. And they kept talking about Kreisel, you know, which is, uh, it's Kreisels are circles is German word for circle. And there's a bunch of tracks in the world that have these Kreisel corners and Calgary is one of them. And that's where I did my first run. And they were saying, you know, you're going to really, you're, you'll know when you're there because the G-force is crazy. Like it just presses you right down into the bottom of the sled. And so I'm thinking, okay, like that's going to be my marker. Cause like I had to pull the brakes at the end too, right? Like it was, it yeah. was a two man sled. I was on the brakes. 
So I was going to do this thing for the first time. And then, and then I actually had like a you know job I had to do at the end, which was like actually semi-important important too. So you don't go flying off <laughs> the end be, of the track. Just slightly important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking about this and I remember getting in the sled and thinking like, wow, like this is pretty fast. And we were in, you know, corner one at that point. So we were going, you know, maybe 65 and we we're about to go 130 plus. And so we're going and your head's down, right? I'm not looking. And I remember thinking to myself after maybe 10 seconds or so, like, oh man, this must be Chrysler because I was getting like pushed into the bottom of the sled. And so I'm like, okay. And I'm trying to like count the corners. And then we hit the Chrysler and I was like absolutely flattened into the bottom of the sled. And like, it's, wow. it's one of these things where like, you know, how often do you experience G-force in your life? You know, yeah. like never it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a crazy feeling for the first time. So I remember just being flattened and it's like all crazy and, you know, getting shaken around and you're kind of bouncing off the side of the sled. And I had no idea where we were at that point. Like all of the counting was gone, you know, no idea. And so, and then I sort of like, I hear this, this yelling, right. And in my mind, it goes to this video that my pilot Lyndon had showed me before we went to the track that day. And it was him in Altenburg, which is this track in East Germany. And it's a video from outside the track and he comes by and crashes and you can hear him like yelling in the sled as he's crashing. And so he's yelling and I'm thinking, Oh no, we're going to crash, you know, cause that's like what was in my mind, but he was like, you know, hit the brakes, hit the brakes. And so I kind of like, I realized like we're not crashing. It was the most, uh, it was the least violent part of the entire run because we were in the braking stretch at this point. And so I, you know, I kind of looked up and I realized and I hit the brakes and it was fine. We stopped like in a reasonable amount of time, but it was, I remember it just being like, like I was so blown away by how crazy it was. It was not at all what I was expecting. Um, and then that those moments continued because I got used to going down the track, but it was just this, like bobsleigh is a lot of work. Like it's a grind. Like I, like you say, I went from, you know, growing up in Hawaii and then, you know, I had winters in Summerland and Vancouver, which are not cold places by Canadian standards. Um, and then, you know, I'm on this bobsleigh tour and you're outside, like it's minus 40 and you're trying to like screw in these things on the sled, you know, cause like we do pretty much all of our sled work. And it was just this like, crazy experience that really, um, like it almost like toughened me up in a way. Like I was like, wow, this is a, this is a real challenge. Like this is hard. Um, and I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push through, I'm gonna do it. Cause you know, I had that goal and, and I learned to love it. Incredible story. Is it also kind of like when you a kid and you go to a water park and you go down a water slide for the first time, you're a bit scared, you're a bit nervous, you get to the bottom and you splash, you're like, fuck, I want to do that again. Come on, let's, let's go. Let's like, and you're just taking the sled right back up to the top and go, come on, let's do this again. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's kind of like that, except that you like, you're, you're nervous to go down, but you almost, if you knew what it was like, you would be more nervous and more like you should actually probably be scared of it because it's so crazy. Um, but it is like, it's a huge rush and you kind of like, when you do the first one, it's like, you have no idea what's happening. So then you want to do it again and like, try to feel the corners and like, kind of actually understand what, what's happening. Um, 
And so it is like, uh, it's, it's kind of fun in that like adrenaline rush sort of way. Uh, although I would never really call sitting in the back of the sled fun because it is so rough. Like it's just yeah. so rough back there. <laughs> Driving like is it- very fun though. You were in control that way, of course. You're you're sort of a bit more different. Which and is it? I can imagine a different experience when you're the brake man with just one guy in front of you versus three guys in front of you as well. Because uh, that I can imagine when you're in the four man as a brake man is completely different to a two man. Yeah, for sure. And it it, it almost adds like a, a a new sort of skill that you have to do. Like in the four man, it's really really important to get the like the shape of the all of the bodies in the right aerodynamic position, which is difficult because it's, you know, it's a lot of big guys in a small sled and you need to hold these uncomfortable positions and fight, fight to hold those positions. Whereas the two man, you know, it's basically just get as low as you can. And it's not super hard because there's nothing in your way, but four man, you really have to like trust and work together with your, your teammates because if somebody, you know, it sounds funny saying like, you know, there's these, these like big tough bobsled guys, but like if somebody gets scared in the sled, which nobody will ever admit that it does happen, they start to kind of tense up and change their position and get lower. And that kind of ruins the position for everybody else because they're taking up more room lower in the sled. And then the person further back that's supposed to be lower gets kind of pushed up a bit higher. So it's this, this real kind of teamwork thing that nobody really knows is going on, but you're very much like working as a unit inside the sled. Which I'd love you to clear something up for me, Justin, just while we're on the topic of this. You've got the driver in the four man, you've got the brake man, the two middlemen. What the fuck are they actually doing besides pushing it really fast? They're just having a free ride down to the bottom of the hill and they just get a you know free medal at the end of it because they've just done the least work. I mean, clear this up for us non-bob sledders here, Justin, about what those two men do in that sled. Yeah, I mean it's what it's a very it's a very misunderstood thing. Um, because you know, a lot of people don't even really understand the athletic part of pushing the sled. Like it's a very, very um, explosive uh, movement in sport. Like you have to be, some of the guys are like world-class level um, power athletes, like could, you know, take on an NFL running back head to head in a sprint and, you know, that kind of thing at the same body weights. Um, but beyond the athletic component, it, if you're at the sort of development level or, or the lower end, um, they more or less are just going along for the ride when they go down, but that's not what they're supposed to be doing. What they're supposed to be doing is holding this aerodynamic position because it makes a massive difference. And it's even hard to explain that to, um, to the crewmen sometimes because it's such a violent experience being in the sled. And it's so almost unfathomable that like you being a half inch lower could be the difference between a gold medal and coming sixth, but that is the case. So you really have to spend a lot of time finding these, these positions and it has to work for the people, right? Like it, you know, if you have, if everybody's five foot five, it's going to be different than if everybody's six foot five, you have to find like the right shape that works for the people. And then it's really about them like fighting to maintain that position and also working together to maintain that position. Um, because the more that they can sort of achieve like a hundred percent perfection in that position, which, you know, is never really going to happen, but anytime you're like 99, hundred percent, there's just less drag. And 
anytime there's less drag, you're just slowing the sled down less. And so you end up building up a higher top speed. And it's like what I had going on with my four man team the past four years was exactly that. Like we were the best in the world at maintaining that position for the longest amount of time. And you can see it in when you start to couple that with, you know, good driving and good equipment, you start to be like the fastest at the bottom of the track. And that's, that's kind of what we did. And, and so that's their sort of unsung hero job is that you can't see it at all. Like, it's not like in other sports, you know, you, if you do something really well, it's like obvious, right. And like people like cheer about it and instantly, you know, stuff like that. This is like, nobody sees it happening unless it's like completely terrible. Nobody sees it when you're, when you're good at it, but it, it can very much be the difference between a good result and a terrible result. It's fascinating to hear that because it's always great when you hear little things like that, as you say, that you don't really see. I know that we've learned a lot through luge athletes on this show about the subtle movements that they're making in order to get fine lines and steering and everything along those lines. And it almost sounds like it's similar to say synchronized diving or synchronized swimming that you've got to be so in sync with each other in order to just get those minuscule seconds. So I, I think I maybe owe the, the, the second and third man uh, apology in all four man bobsled teams. I'm just saying they're just along for a free ride there, Justin. Clearly they're not. They're kind of important. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are very important. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things where you, you have to really have all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, you know, like it takes, it takes a long time to become a good bobsled driver, like a, you know, world-class bobsled driver. Um, and it, it takes less time to get good at sitting properly in the sled, but it is equally as important. And it's, it's so, um, it's hard because there's no feedback, you know, like when I, when I drive, I can tell if I'm kind of on the right line or not, uh, there's feedback in my hands and my body. Like I can feel if momentum is going sideways or straight ahead. Um, and it's, you know, instant feedback, but for them, it's like, you know, if, if your shoulder starts to creep up half an inch, you can't really tell, like you can't feel anything different, but then your time is slow and I'm not going to know who it was right away either. So you have to like analyze these videos and, you know, really get a sense, have everybody really be able to feel when they're in the right position because there's no feedback and it makes it super difficult to do. Yeah, that's insane. And just the, the footage that you're obviously watching and just the things you're having to, to pay attention to, that's that's absolutely crazy. Vancouver, you're part of the four-man, ultimately finished fifth. We always love to find out from our guests that first Olympics, that experience, and particularly when you qualified and you knew you were going and you were selected, going all the way back to 96, you're watching Donovan Bailey, you've got this dream of going to an Olympics. And then fast forward, you've made it, as we said, a home Olympics. I mean... Do you remember that moment and, and sort of at what point was it that it kind of hit you that you were an Olympian? Yeah, I do remember that moment. I'm pretty sure it was, I remember the date, you know, my brother's birthday, January 17th. And I think we were, I think we were in Austria when they sort of did the final team announcement. The thing that is, is especially, um, you know, weird in, in bobsleigh, especially like at that time I was a brakeman, um, your your driver qualifies like by name for the olympics and then you are sort of like nominated or selected by 
the national team to race with with that person. So I remember when like our team was for sure going to qualify. Like I was racing with Pierre Luders at the time and he was qualified to go to the games, but it wasn't like a hundred percent sure that our team was going to be what it was. And there was actually like changes going on during the season. Cause you always have the, these situations in the Olympic year where, you know, there's say for that games, we had six spots for breakman because we had two sleds qualified three per sled. Um, and there was probably legitimately 10 people in the running for those six spots. Wow. And so you're kind of like, and we were in, in subsequent games, it's been like more sure who's going and who's not and which sled they're going to be in. But in these ones, there was, there was some new really phenomenal athletes that had just come out the year before. Um, I was relatively new myself having that was my fourth season. Um, and we were moving around people between sleds and also positions in sleds. So we were like kind of constantly doing these tryouts and, you know, like somebody would get sent home after a bad performance and, you know, then it'd be down to like nine in the running for these six spots. And so it was very like, it was pretty stressful. And like some people really, really struggled with that and had, you know, we kind of like, I call it, I I say to my guys now, like every Olympic season, almost half the team is going to kind of go crazy and like, like lose it and kind of buckle under the, the pressure. And that like that happens big time and people start to their performance suffers, their sort of, you know, mental health suffers and it becomes like a really difficult situation. Um, and I was like, keep keeping a pretty cool head. And I, I was like, I thought pretty focused and centered, but I was watching this like chaos unfold around me where people, there's these conflicts, people are fighting. Like there's sort of this division in the team. There's one of the women's pilots and one of the men's pilots were sort of like in a clique. And then the other two were in this other clique and the, the brakemen hated each other. And it was like, it's kind of a crazy time. Um, and it's so I remember that. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, there hundred percent should have been Bobsleigh would be a great reality show because it is like, it has everything. And then you heighten the, all of it by having like this fear factor of going down the track. Cause it's like scary sometimes. Um, yeah. you know, the fear of crashing and all that stuff. So it is a great drama. Um, but yeah, so I remember when I was, you know, like officially selected for the team, it was just this, like, you know, mix of like relief and like accomplishment, but then also knowing that like, you haven't done it yet, you know, like you, you have to still race at the games and, you know, hopefully put together a good performance. Um, but I got this like really great sense of, of, of achievement that like the goal was, you know, on its way, at least to being complete, you know, I've been selected and it, it, it felt amazing. And, and me and the the four guys, um, especially this one breakman, Jesse Lumsden, we were kind of both new to this and we'd been moving around positions and we were like, we talked a lot about, you know, just pushing through how like difficult it was and challenging and, um, and, you know, achieving this, this goal. And when we did, you know, it was kind of this moment where we're like, all right, we did it. And like, but also now the real work begins in actually trying to put together a good race. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing moment, um, amidst like so much chaos. Mm. Which 
all the way back to being in BC Place for the announcement to then walking out, you know, in BC Place in an opening ceremony and a closing ceremony representing your country. I mean, that's just an insane journey. But as I said, fifth, obviously your first Olympics through all of what you're saying, you know, it's kind of getting over that. I'm in the Olympics. That's now got to switch focus to business. I mean, did you guys sort of set yourself a, a goal? Was it sort of medal? You know, was fifth satisfactory? Kind of how do you look back at Vancouver, your first Olympics with how you actually went? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, looking back, it was a disappointing result because we had one of the best, like most legendary pilots in the sport in Pierre Luders. And we had quite a good team, although it was, we were all pretty new Um, and a home track on a very difficult track. So that gives you a big advantage. But what I didn't know then that I do know now after driving for so many years is that we did not have a good sled. Um, And it was, there were these, these new four man sleds that had been coming out over the last couple of years at the time. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a, you know, like a relationship thing, or if, if Pierre didn't think that those sleds were as good as people thought they were or whatever, but either way, we didn't have one. We had something else, something quite a bit older. Um, I think it was the same sled that Pierre had raced in 2006 in, which is starting to get like, even now for me, like having a sled for more than four years is pretty rare for it to be like, you know, very competitive. So we did not really have a good chance in that we didn't have a good sled. Um, all the people who won medals there had either that new sled or, um, the the American that won, they had built kind of their own sled in conjunction with, um, like Bodine, which is a NASCAR kind of company. So we, I think, you know, it was this, for me, I was just really happy that I had qualified and, and raced in the games. And I thought I had, you know, performed pretty well and, and coming fifth in your first games is great. I just, you know, I, I think I know that our pilot was disappointed because he knew we could have done better. Um, so it was a little bit of mixed emotions. Like I was celebrating a home Olympics and such an amazing experience, but also like the other Canadians had, had won a bronze medal. And I was like, just so thrilled with them. And I saw like all of the stuff that they did and it was so, so amazing. And like, I really, you know, wanted that in the future. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a very, very, a time of mixed emotions for sure. I love these things that you clearly are wanting in the future and you go and set and achieve them there, Justin. I mean, obviously we're going to get to what happens uh, eight years later, but you switch after Vancouver from a brakeman to a pilot, which is that something that is commonly done? Is that kind of the progression? You start off as a brakeman and move your way up to a pilot or was there something more to this that you thought, well, no, I want to give this a crack now? Yeah, it is uh, somewhat common, especially these days. Um, you know, like all sports, it, it's evolved and the, the pilot position kind of used to be not an athletic position. You know, it was kind of just a guy who had driven a lot and, you know, very good at driving, but it was, it was not, it was not athletic, but then people started to become very good drivers and very, who were very athletic. And then all of a sudden you kind of have, you know, two guys pushing the slide or four guys instead of three or one. And that advantage you get on the start, if you have two or four really good athletes pushing it, 
is massive and game changing. So that sort of became the norm is trying to get your Olympic level brakeman or, you know, close to Olympic level brakeman driving and see if anybody has, you know, a knack for it. <clears throat> and then, you know, you might end up with a really good athlete who's also a good driver. And that's kind of how, that's where the sport is now. All the, all the drivers are quite athletic. So for me, um, it was like a confluence of events. I thought that driving looked really fun. Um, it was this, you know, whole thing that I had no idea about Pierre would, would sort of, you know, talk, talk to us a little bit about it, but, um, you know, he'd been driving for 20 years at that point or something like that. So, you know, his level of experience and expertise, and it was just so far beyond what we were even thinking about, but he told me that he was going to retire and he thought I should try driving. He thought that I would, you know, have a, have a good chance of being good at it just because of the way he saw me sort of approach different things. Like I was methodical and analytical and I like to try to understand what's going on with the sled and the driving and stuff like that. And so he said he was interested in coaching and he would coach me for a while and, and sort of teach me the fundamentals or whatever. So I thought, you know, sure, let's go try this out. So it was only a few weeks after 2010, I went down to Lake Placid and did a, a driving school. And then the, the sort of plan was that Pierre was going to coach the development team the next season. And so after I sort of, you know, smashed my way down the track for a few weeks in Lake Placid, I'd start to learn from, you know, Pierre, who's a, like one of the best ever. Um, and when I went down to Lake Placid, it was just, so much fun. Like I went with, uh, Jesse Lumsden, who was on, on the same team as me in, in 2010. And, uh, you know, we're in these old shit bucket slides, like they're rusted out. Like they're just, you know, terrible. Um, and we're excited, but also like we've been sliding with one of the best pilots of all time. And it's still crazy in the back of the sled. So we're kind of thinking like, what's it going to be like with us driving these things? So we're kind of like, you know, stuffing yoga mats down each other's backs and like wearing pads and things like that. <clears throat> and it was pretty, it was pretty fun and, and, and chill. Like we would just do a bunch of runs per day. We'd switch off. Like, so he would drive, then I would drive and, and each person would break for the other one. And then, you know, we'd go and have some beers after, and we were celebrating becoming Olympians still. And so, like it was a really fun trip and just, I guess, getting a sense for going down the track. Like it, it was really fun driving. Like the sled was, you know, looking back, it was crazy. Like some, if you pulled too hard to the left, it wouldn't return back to neutral, which is like makes it really hard to drive, but we didn't know any difference. So we, I don't think we even crashed or anything. Like we had some really big hits in the walls and like, you know, it was super rough, but, um, I went to the top, like I progressed. So we start like, you know, way down the track and just sort of go down super slow and then move up a little bit and go down super slow. And then I went to the top and they did like a couple of runs from there. And I kind of thought, you know, like, I feel like I could get good at this. Like I, I was reasonably calm in the slide, you know, and like, because a lot of people sort of panic, right? Like it's, it does get pretty insane sometimes and Lake Blasted is a difficult track. Um, but I thought, you know, maybe I had a shot at being good at this. So when I got back to Calgary, I sat down with the, um, the coaches and, and I said, yeah, like, 
I want to, I want to go ahead and give this a go for a few years. And, you know, if I end up being terrible, I'll just go back to being a brakeman. And we had quite a few good drivers at the time in the program. So, um, everybody was on board with the plan and yeah, I just, so I set off and became a driver. Did all right. Pretty well from that point on, I think, um, honestly, yeah. <laughs> uh, making your way up, go back to Sochi again in, in 2014, where you compete in both the two and the four man, which it's, I mean, on paper, it seems like a, a logical choice. You're in the four man, split you guys in half, go and, and do the, do the two man. But was that always the plan? Cause I, I believe you were in the two man. Um, and then obviously did the, the four man come afterwards or were you always sort of planned to be in both in Sochi? Yeah, it's planned to be in both, um, assuming that I qualified for both. Uh, so like, I mean, normally how it works when you learn how to drive, you start with two men cause it's easier and you're going to like hurt less people when you're, <laughs> when you crash. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is much like the two men is a lot easier to kind of like control and save from crashing. You have more grip and there's less sort of like top heavy weight just cause you don't have all the people in the back. Um, so like when I went into Sochi, I felt like I was getting reasonably good at two men. I was inconsistent, but you know, I, I could lay down some pretty solid runs and I got, you know, I've been on the world cup for a bit and I actually won a world cup right before Sochi in the two men, which like surprised everybody, including myself. Um, Cause I, you know, I really had no business winning a world cup in my fourth year of driving. That's quite rare. And I certainly didn't repeat that, <laughs> um, for a while, but the four man was still pretty new to me. And also, you know, that year it was, I was the, the third ranked Canadian pilot and the other two were, you know, pretty much for sure going to qualify. And I think, you know, Lyndon had a, a pretty good chance of doing well. And Chris Spring was also, he was doing quite well. I think he got a number of medals that year. So he was having a really good season. And for me, it was really about qualifying for the games. Um, that was the big goal. Uh, at least when the season started, once we got to Christmas, I was kind of doing a lot better than expected. And so I was kind of thinking, well, maybe I can, you know, do a little better. Like I'm pretty sure I'm going to qualify. Uh, but it was like two man focused because four man, I was not having good results. I was, you know, 10th plus all the time. Like I was going to qualify, but didn't look like a good result. Um, but then at the games, I just like, I didn't have any runs in Sochi at all, really, because I didn't get sent to the international training event because it was sort of like I was new and, I didn't really have like a, or at least people didn't think I had like a chance at winning a medal. And so, you know, it's really expensive to send, you know, four men slide over there and two men slide and all this stuff. So I didn't really have any runs on the track, but I just kind of clicked with it. And I was just like, I kept being the fastest Canadian sled down the track in, in training. And then in the two man race, I finished as the top Canadian sled. And we were actually like in the mix for a medal in the two men. And so then after we did two days of four man training and again, I was the fastest Canadian sled. And so the, the team decided to, to make me the top sled and give me the top guys, top equipment. And like, 
you know, I'm an athlete professional. I was like challenge accepted, but like at the same time, I was like, you know, I have like no runs down this track. Um, and like, I was just kind of nailing this like really difficult section just like constantly. Although I messed it up in the two man in the last run and sort of like threw it away, which we'll come back to later. Um, but so in the format, you know, we had this, this new team and my old team was like kind of crushed that they weren't going to finish the, the journey that we'd started together. And I felt the same way, but I was kind of like, my mindset was like, let's worry about that later. Like we've got a job to do here. Like, let's just, you know, move forward. And so I got the new guys and they were excited because it looked like if we left the teams the same, none of us had a chance to win a medal. But if we stacked my team, we had like a Hail Mary outside shot. If I managed to, you know, put four runs together because those guys were pushing really fast and uh, we had some good equipment and, and I had some good training runs, but I ended up crashing in a spectacular fashion. And so it was uh, after Sochi, it was, you know, I said before, like every Olympic season, people go crazy. Yeah. That, that season was, was nuts because we had like three, really competitive teams. And there was a lot of personality conflicts between brakemen and pilots and men's and women's teams. And the whole thing was just very tumultuous and stressful. Like it was not like a cohesive unit as far as like team Canada bobsleigh um, between the athletes. It was pretty, it was pretty crazy. And so after, you know, the, the pilot who essentially had his team taken away and given to me, he was really upset and devastated. And I was upset and devastated because I crashed. Like, I feel like I let everybody down. And it was the, just this, like this period of time where I was like, how can I be like so good in one race in, in the world cup before the Sochi Olympics, like in the two men, I won, I won the world cup. Like, how can I go from that? to at the games, like completely throwing it away in the final run of the two men. And later on after Russian disqualifications and stuff, I would have had a medal if I had held on to that, that position. Wow. And then like crashing in the format, like I was kind of like, Oh my God, like what, like what happened? And I kind of had this realization that like Sochi and Vancouver, the Olympics, like happened to me. Like I was obviously there and competing, whatever, but like I had this sense that like the whole thing sort of unfolded and I was almost like a spectator. Like I didn't feel like I really went in knowing how to like compete at my best. And it's just like, there's so much more that goes into the Olympics than just your sport, because there's all this pressure and media attention and you don't get a lot of that in bobsleigh especially at the time i certainly didn't and then all of a sudden it's like this huge thing and you like really really want to do well and it's almost like the more you want it and care about it the harder it becomes to achieve it because you're just like almost sabotaging yourself mentally because you're 
you just care so much and you're overthinking things and you're trying to make things happen. Like in the two men in Sochi, I remember going into the fourth run and I was thinking about like, I had to do something different because the guys in front of me, the top three sleds were not going to like fall back to me. I had to like somehow like catch them. And that is a recipe for disaster, like probably in most sports, but for sure in bobsleigh, because like really less is more in bobsleigh driving. So like the more you like try to make things happen, just the slower you go and the more likely you are to mess up. And I messed up this key section that I'd been nailing and dropped back a bunch of spots. Um, but I mean, the, the positive coming out of that was that it led to this whole realization that there's this mental performance aspect that I had never even considered working on, you know, like for me, it was you, you train hard in the gym, you try to drive well down the track, you do what the coaches say and a plus B equals C you'll end up doing really well. But I didn't realize that like, especially in a sport like bobsleigh, you know, you get to the Olympics and all of a sudden it's this like, massive thing. And there's these relatively speaking, huge rewards compared to what you're normally getting, like, you know, life-changing if you get an Olympic medal. And so it just like the pressure just ramps up exponentially. And like, how can you possibly be ready to handle that if you never worked on that kind of thing? So it's sort of, it was a blessing really, because it, it led me to do all of this work that completely changed how I approached my career and skills that I learned that, you know, transfer really well to day-to-day to -day life even. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to sort of mention with that in the lead up to Pyeongchang, you know, going in with a bit more pressure on your shoulders, having won the World Cup title and having a breakout season in the, in the lead up. You mentioned before about how you won that World Cup before Sochi and, oh, okay, we'll do it again. But this is a completely different kettle of fish. And I can also imagine the attention that would have brought from the media back home in Canada, you know, a little bit of extra thing there, but was it all that preparation that you were just talking about that kind of helped you put it all down on the track that ultimately led to that goal in Pyeongchang? Yeah, absolutely. And like the thing that is, you know, crazy about it and that I, you know, I feel very lucky about happening is that, you know, at the time, like that Sochi experience seemed like a terrible thing. But if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have likely discovered all of this, you know, mental side of everything, mental training. And I ended up, you know, haphazardly putting together this sort of system over a few years for myself using um, meditation techniques and um, focus techniques and just kind of building this, this routine where I learned how to identify what sort of mental state I was in and then how to change it into the right mental state. And also what mental state was the, the right sort of headspace for me to be in to race. So it was sort of like this progression of like, okay, like I need to feel like this to, to perform at my best. And then, okay, how do I get there? And then how do I get there from a really you know, difficult position. Like it's the first step was sort of, you know, clearing my mind and, and just using meditation techniques. And that over time becomes really, really easy 
at home alone in your apartment to sort of enter this meditative zone state or like a flow state. Um, and so I was like, okay, like this is a good, good first step kind of thing. But the reality is I don't compete at home alone in my apartment when the things that I really want to do well at there's, you know, 50 million people watching and like, I really, really care about the result and there's media attention. And it's just like so much pressure versus sitting at home alone in your apartment. So I started to kind of like ramp it up into those situations. Like I would, once I had identified kind of this headspace I wanted to be in and, and how to get there, I started to figure out ways to like shorten the amount of time it took to get into that headspace. So like, I wouldn't do a full meditation. I would just, um, I had some strategies to, to get into that headspace quickly. And then once I had that, I would start to do it, you know, at training, like after doing a, an all out sprint, so like my heart rate's up, got some adrenaline pumping, I'm out of breath, then try to get into that headspace. And then every time I went down the track and then I would try to, like, I did some, some funny stuff. Like I would take like three scoops of pre-workout. So I was just like feeling jittery and anxious. And like, then I would try to get into that headspace and then go down the track. And, you know, it's kind of like in that period of time. And since then too, I've realized that like, this is a thing that really successful athletes and just people in general learn how to do and, and practice. It's not like, like, I thought that people were just naturally, you know, ice cold or like really good at performing under pressure, under pressure, but it's just your typical, like everything else. Once you see that person, they're, they're at the top of their game and they've been practicing this for a long time. So it looks easy, but it is definitely something that you can work on and practice and get really good at over time. And so, you know, using all it's like Michael Phelps, you know, like his, his, uh, mm. his coach used to smash his goggles and whatever, like try to throw them off, but it, it's so smart, right? Because you, you go to the Olympics and there's all this pressure and all these different things can happen. And you have to just be able to like execute this thing that you're really good at by just blocking everything out and just like getting out of your own way and letting it happen, you know? And in that period of time, I, developed this system to, to do it for myself. And so I went into 2018, like feeling so calm, like just, cause I just, I knew I had these strategies to deal with whatever happened. And like, I remember going into that race, not just the start of the race, but like particularly the fourth heat, you know, we were, um, six hundredths of a second in the lead and the guy in second, um, Francesco Friedrich, you know, like legendary bobsledder, way faster start than me, way faster sled. So like, I have to be perfect. He can kind of mess up and still probably be really fast. And so you'd think it would be like this, just really, really high pressure, difficult situation. And like, it was, I was aware of it, but like, I just was able to use my strategies and just clear my mind and I remember standing on that start block and just being like, this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I know how to do it. My mind was clear and I just like went and did it. And it was like, it was easy to be honest. Wow. Like it was, 
it was hard before it, you know, like to get into that position where I was able to do that. But the race itself, like, I just didn't think about anything. I just did my thing. And, you know, like I had basically a perfect run and it was amazing. The first Olympic gold medalist I've ever spoken to, who I think just described their gold medal win as easy. So uh, I think you write a book. <laughs> this is where we write a yeah. book. There's a secret in this. It, it, it's easy. Done. That, yeah. That's how you do it. Yeah. I mean, that minute was easy. The, the four years, well, I mean, the I guess 10 years leading up to it, um, you know, obviously a lot of work, but like that, that moment where I realized that you can train this mental aspect of performance and that if you do, it's like, it's almost like having a superpower. It was, it was just so game changing because from, you know, I, I probably got good at it. Like that season, probably like it took three years, maybe four years of, of kind of working at it to be like, to the point where I, I felt like I could handle like any, any situation. Um, and, you know, also I was getting pretty good at driving at that point. So it's kind of the other aspect of it. Like you have to be good at what you're doing to just, you know, clear your mind and let your body automatically do it. It has to be, you know, automatic, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was just like a complete game changer. Cause now I would go into these situations where before, like I'd be, you know, really thinking about it and I'd be thinking about the results and, you know, how much it would mean if I did this. And I changed that to just like clearing my mind. I had the tools to do it and just getting out of my own way and just like letting myself perform the way that I could while other people sort of dropped away. And it was just, yeah, I mean, it was, it was an incredible realization. And it's so, I mean, it's kind of like now I'm trying to, I'm retired now. I'm trying to like put together a way to like teach that to other people, you know, like it's, it's different for do? everybody. I, I would imagine, <laughs> you know, like it, my exact system isn't going to work, but the idea behind it, I think the fundamentals are the same like this, those first steps I took where you, you learn how to like be aware of the mental state you're in and then develop tools to change that into the mental state that you want to be in. It's just so useful. Like it doesn't matter if it's sports or business or a job interview or public speaking or whatever it is like that ability to recognize your headspace and then be able to adjust it to what you need it to be is life-changing. Yeah. And and I'm telling you now, if you do write the book on this, I mean, I'm, I'm signing up to it right now. I, I want a copy of this because you're inspiring me to this. And I, I also, the fact of the matter is that you've, you've worked on all of this to the fine tuning point that when you win your gold, you win it in a tie. So, I mean, you've, you've honed this into the point where you've gone, well, let's share the love. Let's let's have four of us win a gold medal and, and share this mindset with our German friends at the same time. So, I mean, th- that's just some really fine-tuning there, Justin, that I think that is going to look great in a book or whatever you decide to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was such a, a, a magical moment, just like a confluence of so many different events and hard work and, and with the guys that we tied with as well, like a lot of people don't don't know it, but he, he had a really terrible Sochi as well. So he went into Sochi as the world champion. And I think he came ninth in the two man and somewhere back in the four man as well. 
and he he dominated pretty well for since Sochi until um, until Pyeongchang. So nobody was really surprised that he did well. But I remember that disappointment that he had in Sochi. I remember seeing it on him, and you know we were kind of just getting to know each other, like we were both new on the World Cup, and but I remember that, and I remember seeing how hard he worked and how hard I worked, and for us to to end up you know tying and both getting gold medals, it was like it, it's like a, a fairy tale, like a storybook. Yeah, which which is crazy. Just everything that came from that, um, you know, the the breakthrough for Canada after a bit of a drought too, to 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 get that gold as well. And you sort of mentioned before about life changing moments, and I just I love that explanation. You say that that sixty seconds, it was easy. You knew you were doing, but sixty seconds, it changes your life on so many ways. And again, way back to nineteen ninety six, you've achieved exactly what you uh, watched Donovan Bailey doing as well. And obviously that led into Beijing, the four-man, the bronze, creating history as the first Canadian pilot to win a medal in both the two-man and four-man. I mean, now that you're retiring and you, you, you reflect on all these things that you've achieved, do you, do you sometimes just take yourself back to that young boy watching Donovan Bailey and, and just pinch yourself sometimes that here you are now with an amazing career behind you that you achieved exactly what Donovan did, you know, nearly 30 years ago? Yeah. I mean, it, I do for sure. It's not, it's not lost on me at all. Like I, it, it feels almost like, like a a dream, you know, like you, you set these goals and like the goals weren't specifically what I achieved, you know, they were, um, it, it's like that diagram people say, people think success goes like this, but it actually goes, you know, squiggly line like that. It was very much like that for me. And there's, you know, key moments in there that, led to it, you know, taking opportunities, accepting challenges and, and working really, really hard. Like it, it was a lot of work. Like I pushed myself further than I ever thought I could or, or would, um, and learn things about myself that, you know, I didn't know. And, but yeah, to come out of it with these medals and just such a, an amazing experience. It's, it's, it's pretty wonderful. And, and like, I've, you know, I'm not like hundred percent sure what's next for me in detail, but like, I, I would like to be a part of helping some other athletes get that because it's the devil really is in the details, you know, like it, I had an amazing career and journey and I, I would feel that way. I think even if I didn't win any of, of these medals, because, you know, it was, it was a big adventure and I met a lot of lifelong friends and, and I had a great time. But the, like the difference between winning the medals and not is like so small and it is, it is life-changing. Like people, sometimes people say like, you know, winning an Olympic medal doesn't change your life. And like, it's true in the sense where, you know, I just watched the PGA tour championship and the winner got $18 million. So like, it's not like that at all. Um, Damn. If, if <laughs> you, <sport>. yeah. <laughs> rats. <laughs> <laughs> like if you, if you know, if you win your Olympic medal and you go home and you put it in your drawer and you like, don't talk to anybody anymore or whatever, like that's, it's not going to change your life, but the amount of doors it opens up and opportunities it gives you it. I mean, like are saying that it's not life changing. I think is, is pretty crazy. Like you can, the opportunities I've gotten are just innumerable, And I just, you know, I consider myself really lucky and you know you have to be good to be lucky but like those hundreds of a second that were 
the difference, you know, like to put it in perspective in Pyeongchang, we tied for gold and third place was four hundredths of a second behind us. So that means five hundredths of a second and you're out of the medals completely. And then in Beijing, the same thing we won by, we won the bronze by six hundredths of a second. So it's just like, the margins are so small and the pressure is so high, you know, it's less than a blink wild. of an eyelid that isn't it like that. You, you can blink basically uh, slower than that. That's, that's insane that time. Yeah. And that's why, like, I feel like my, I, I kind of came to this realization that, you know, during my kind of exploration of mental performance and mental training and stuff, my goal always became to, arrive at the Olympics knowing truly and honestly that I had done everything I could to put myself in the best position possible to have a good result. And then after that, you just go out there and do your thing and like, don't worry about it, you know, because you did everything you could. And I think like that actually helps in a lot of ways because you realize that the work is over. Like you've you've done it. By the time you get there, you can't change anything about what's going to happen. You know, like it's, it would usually be a mistake. You know, you can't do a bunch of training and get faster athletically. The more you think about the track, as long as you have a you know a pretty good program dialed in, which you should by that point, overthinking a corner is probably going to be worse than just, you know, going through on your, your, the line that you, you've chosen. Um, and so like that became the goal and it just, that helps to like take the pressure off because, you know, you're just, you, you have to be happy with the result if you've done everything you possibly can. And like, I didn't do it in a, a real draconian way either. You know, like I was holistic about it. Like I, I think it's a mistake to like, just train yourself to death, you know, and like sacrifice everything else. Like you need to be happy with what's going on as well. Like you're not going to perform well if you're just crushed under the pressure of like, Oh my God, I sacrificed like everything for this. And like, that's not a really good way to go into a, a big event like that. So, you know, I, I missed some training sessions and things like that, but I knew that those things that I, those decisions I made were for like the greater good, you know, yeah, not getting sure. overtrained, feeling good about myself and things like that. Which, which I love, like I love, I'm so glad you've talked so much in depth about this, Justin, because one of my favorite parts is always learning about that mental aspect because yeah, obviously people think Olympians, they think of, you know, higher, faster, stronger and the stronger aspect, the training, everything. But there's so much that goes into that mental aspect of it that, that gets you over the edge. And as we've learned with you, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a massive driving force which which is absolutely incredible two two things i just really want to touch on quickly before before we let you go you, you touched on the medal well the medals i should say we always love finding out from our medalists what do you do with the medals and and also you got an even more prized possession in beijing you got a bing duen duen we love hearing about the bing duen duens that you get because you couldn't <laughs> bloody get one after beijing so is that is that more valuable than your olympic gold and olympic bronze medal well, it was pretty funny actually, because in, in Beijing, when we got given that Bing Duen Duen and we had, you know, a special one, it has like a reef, like, yeah. a, like a, you know, metal one or whatever. Um, all of the, the, the volunteers were like rushing us to take pictures with us once we were kind of like finished the medal ceremony. And, you know, we were like, you know, holding up the medals and stuff. And they're like, no, no, no. Like we want the Bing Duen Duen, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, oh, okay. Like this is way more important. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, the Bing Duen Duen is pretty cool. I managed to get one for my uh, my little cousin in Australia as well. So great, um, that was exciting. So there's one in Australia. Um, there's a Bing Duen Duen outside of our our own Olympic medalist. Yeah. There's at least one else out there. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, with the medals, I mean, it's it's super cliche, but they're they're like in my sock drawer. Um, it's a nice padded place. You can throw it in a sock and like put it in your pocket if you need to go to like an event where they want you to bring your medal. Um, I think, you know, one day it'll, it'll be in like a display case or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you don't really like take it out and look at it that much. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of those things where it's like when you get it, especially the first one and like this, this one was, I don't know, it was like almost like, you know, you'd think a, a gold medal is more important than a bronze medal, but like this particular bronze medal, like with these four guys that we, you know, we did four years together and um, did pretty much every race together. And at the start of that four years, people didn't necessarily think that we would be like a great team. Like they thought people would, you know, kind of be switched onto that team, whatever. So when we achieved it, it was just like, like we call it our rose gold medal. Cause it's, it's almost like a, it kind of looks rose gold in the, the, the way the bronze is. And it feels like a gold medal. Cause it was like, it was such a, it was such a, a hard race. Like it, the odds were stacked against us with, you know, the Germans had such good equipment and everything. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things where we like me and the guys talk about it a lot, but like, we're not really pulling out our medals and looking at them too often, you know, so they just kind of <laughs> sit in the, in the drawer there. As long as it, as long as they're somewhere safe. Last question I've got to ask, I need to know beast mode, your nickname, where, where does this come from? I actually don't even know when that started, but it was, I think it was because um, like I had switched from being a Olympic level brakeman to being a, a pilot. And, you know, for those first year or two racing on like the very, very entry level circuit. I was like a phenomenal pusher for, for a pilot. So like our start times were always like insane. Um, and I, yeah, people just started kind of calling me beast mode. And then this company from, um, Saskatchewan, I think they're called 22 fresh. They sent me a shirt that said beast mode and I actually wore it for every two man race for the rest of my career. It like became like a lucky charm for me. (laughs) <laughs> wow geez did, did they stick on board with the sponsorship like i mean otherwise i mean i would be pretty happy with that if they knew that was going on you know when you're winning olympic medals with that underneath the suit <laughs> yeah no i mean i ended up being sponsored by lululemon or being an ambassador for them and and uh that's like it was uh, <laughs> underneath you know underneath the speed suit i had this this beast mode shirt um, well, there you go, Lululemon, yeah. like Beast Mode Apparel now coming soon. Where's the new Beast Mode Lululemon yeah, line? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's Beast Mode Crips, Lululemon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I like that. We actually, where I'm from in Tasmania, we have a uh, a bakery, a brand of bread called Crips. So uh, if you're oh. ever uh, in the hunt for something with the last name and you want to sell some bread in Australia, uh, I'm sure you could be a spokesperson for uh, a pretty prominent Tasmanian bread company, Justin. So putting there it out you there. go. See it. Doors opening. That's what it's all it's, about. It's, Doors you're opening. You're welcome. If you need an extra manager, I, I, I'm available. Uh, just on that, in terms of people wanting to stay up to date with what you're going, with all the great stuff you, you're talking about, obviously moving into that new direction of your career right now, social media, websites, where can people sort of stay up to date with what you're going to be getting on with your life now With now that you've retired from bobsled? 
Yeah. So, you know, we got the same social media, everything's just Justin Cripps, you know, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. And then I'm working on a website. Um, it's going to be called buildmentalmuscle.com. And that is where I'm going to experiment with trying to, you know, teach, teach people or <clears throat> at least guide people in the right direction as far as this kind of mental performance aspect. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a new kind of project for me. Um, just, it's going to be experimentation. You know, I'm going to put up videos. I'm going to try to build a course and hopefully get feedback from people and, and try to, you know, hone it into something that, um, people can really use and get value out of because my, it, it was haphazardly put together, like the system that I use for myself. Um, but to, it, it it's just so valuable having those skills. And so I, I'm trying to figure out a way to like teach that to, you know, anybody who, who can benefit from it. And, um, so yeah, buildmentalmuscle.com, um, might be up by the time, uh, the podcast comes out. We'll see. Indeed. We'll keep an eye. Otherwise beastmode.com. You could have a side one going on there just in case yeah. that wasn't uh, already taken. <laughs> Justin, I've got to say, this has been an absolute pleasure. You, you've got this superpower that I'm so glad you're going to be using out there and sharing it with and uh, helping other people with it because it, it definitely worked for you. And I think it's definitely something that we look forward to seeing put out there for, for other people. But congratulations on an absolutely amazing career in the sport of uh, bobsled. Uh, very much uh, has been a pleasure having you on the show today, learning a little bit more about that. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go talk to those people at uh, Crips Bakery and uh, we'll also hook you <laughs> up and they can do some minus uh, exercises with some bread as well, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. That sounds great. I appreciate you having me on the show. And, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Justin there. Really insightful stuff and definitely looking forward to seeing where his journey takes him with all those mindfulness techniques and really inspiring stuff there. Fascinating fact, of course, uh, the fact that Canada won that gold back in Pyeongchang tied with Germany. And I mentioned the drought. It was a 20-year drought for Canada in the two-man bobsled from winning a gold medal. And you've got to go back to 1998, 20 years, and he's talking about uh, Pierre Ludez a little bit there was a pilot of that sled that got a gold and another tie. The only other time there was a tie in the Olympics uh, in the two-man bobsled was also involving Canada. So uh, absolutely incredible to think that that is a two-time Olympic gold medalist tied record that Canada hold in both the 98 and the 2018 Olympics. I'm just saying now, the 2038 Winter Olympics, I'm calling it now, we're, uh, what, 15 years away from that happening it is going to be a tie and Canada will win another gold medal in that one. You've heard it here first on Off the Podium. But a big thanks to Justin for his time there and also a big thanks to his management for arranging that interview with us today here on Off the Podium. Plenty more great interviews coming your way over the coming weeks here on the show. Again, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you exactly what you want to hear when it comes to the guests we've got coming up. Next episode on the show course remember we're dropping multiple episodes a week presently we've got so many great interviews that we've just want to bring them to you as soon as we possibly can we have a legendary australian broadcaster being involved in some iconic olympic moments and i'm saying this right now he was the voice behind an iconic olympic moment that we celebrate on this show every single day of our lives we just wake up and we celebrate this moment and He's the voice of one of the moments that we now have 
in our introduction, of course, on our new 2023 introduction here on Off the Podium. So there's a little teaser for you. I'm sure you can put two and two together. After that, we've got a couple of athletes who do a lot of flips and turns and then hopefully land and that does them quite well. One of them is an Olympic medalist in that discipline. So stay tuned for that. And after those guests, we've got some great guests coming away, including some new sports that we've never had on the show. Athletes from those sports we've never had on the show. Plenty to keep you occupied over the coming weeks and months. And also in a couple of weeks too, I will say that the gang is back together. Colin, Jared, and myself will be back to bring you another special episode. I don't want to give it away right now, but it is a good one. You will enjoy it just like you enjoy all of our episodes here on Off the Podium. And if you want to enjoy the past, the present, and the future, subscribe on all good podcast platforms. Search for Off the Podium. Mash the subscribe button. Leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. And, of course, social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And as always, if you liked what you heard today with Justin, you can watch the interview on the video version on YouTube. Just search for Off the Podium while you're on YouTube and you can see our other guests as well. It is a, a great place to look at our guests while you hear them. That's generally what happens when you watch something, in case you've never worked that out. Big thanks again to Justin for his time on the show and a big thanks to you for listening wherever you are listening to the show today. As always, a shout-out goes to the Birmingham Bull. My name is Ben. This has been Off the Podium. And remember to go left. When the stars make it through Just like pasta when you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, Signore. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli that some